Hello, Canucks fans, and welcome in to episode 134, season 4, episode 15 of the Canucks Speakeasy Podcast. I'm Pete. And I'm Doug. Doug, we got a four-game flight here, so let's start it off with that. The Canucks continued their road trip in Florida and played the Tampa Bay Lightning. They came away with a 5-4 loss. Quinn Hughes had an absolutely beautiful goal. To go along with that beautiful goal, he had two assists, and JT Miller and Elias Pettersson each had a goal and an assist. Canucks continue along in Florida, falling 4-3 to the Panthers. Petey with a couple of helpers in this one. Goals from Bo, of course. And then surprises, Tyler Myers and Jack Studnico got on the board as well. The second leg of a back-to-back, the Canucks found themselves in Carolina and surprisingly came away with a 4-3 win in the shootout. Andre Kuzmenko had two assists and Ethan Bear, moments after the tragic news of Geno passing, scored a goal for the Canucks. And the Canucks return home to once again play the Lightning, how he started this game flight. That's kind of weird. And you always know when you're the Canucks and someone's sitting on a big milestone, like 499 goals, that they're going to score, and they're probably going to score a hat trick. Steve Stamkos does that, gets up to 502 career goals. Lightning score four in the first. Canucks never recover, losing 5-2. Quinn Hughes with a goal and assist. JT Miller with a couple of helpers. And Andre Kuzmenko with the other goal. That's a weird. Um, that's a weird flight, Doug. That's all against Southeast American teams. Yeah, I'm three games against the two Florida teams, which you know, two of those games were in Florida, and obviously the game uh, on Wednesday night was in Vancouver. So uh, yeah, it's kind of weird in that little four game uh, flight that you'd play Tampa twice and Florida once. So all uh, all the Eastern Conference teams there. I, w- I will say, so you got the Carolina game there, and you mentioned uh, the Ethan Bear channeling Geno Ojic there. Uh, in a season that, that's, you know, kind of going to go along with all the other seasons we've had lately, that goal in that moment was, was something really special. Like, there's just so many things, you know. You have a Russian 96 getting the assist on Ethan Bear is a Cree member, the only First Nation player in the Canucks lineup moments after it's announced about Gino's passing. Like, that kind of stuff you can't write. Like, that's that's just incredible. And that, that for me, if nothing else, that's that's the highlight of the season up to this point. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, obviously it comes with the tragic news of losing Gino. Um I think it was, what, six, seven years ago, he had a pretty major health scare that ended up putting him in the hospital for quite some time. And I believe at that time, the doctors didn't give him much more than a year or two to live. And he surpassed that by, you know, I I believe it was like six, seven years, he continued to be able to live his life and impact not only, you know, his friends and family, but the fan base as well. And, you know, if you think about, Vancouver Canuck lore and even just Vancouver sports heroes. I think Gino's a top 10 Vancouver sport hero. You know what I mean? Like he, mm-hmm. he, he is 
arguably one of, if not the most liked players in Canuck history. That that for sure. I mean, you could look at some of the guys they've retired numbers for, and Gino's more popular than all of them. He's always been involved with the team, even though he played for other teams. There's this connection that he has with Vancouver, and he's always a Canuck, right? Like, I mean, at at heart, Gino is a Vancouver Canuck, and we were both very fortunate with with our ages to see Gino in his entire career and the legend that Gino became, and you know, being able to chant Gino's name out at the, the old Coliseum when he's riding shotgun with Pavel Bure. I mean, there was that was at a certain time and place and the fact that he could score goals he had 16 goals one year he he could score and he's known more as as a fighter but the way he embraced the city and just was always had that like just that grin on his face and everything you hear about all these players are different generations of players whether it's Stan Smeal or Cliff Ronning or or Pavel Bure or whoever right everyone just says the best things uh, about him. And I'd say easily, easily, if, if not top 10, top five, maybe top three. I think, uh, I think Ian McIntyre yesterday during the program said that, you know, we all remember Pavel Bure's first game. Uh, well, those of us that were around and, you know, we've, we've talked about it before and, and the impact he had. And, and like Elias Pettersson, when he came in uh, against Calgary, we remember that. But after that, he said, you know, it's probably Geno's first game when he fought Dave Manson and the Grim Reaper. Like two big ass guys. And and again, like for, for folks that weren't around in that time, in the early nineties, every team's fourth line was goons. And this was in the twenty one team NHL. And the Canucks always had a few goons in the lineup, but Gino was next level and to take on those two guys in his first game immediately got the fans in the blue collar Pacific Coliseum going. And he was just embraced by the city ever since. And again, ceremonies, whatever he comes back to town. Uh, I mean, it's really tough to find another player that was as well liked as Gino Ojik was in this market. I think, I think you're totally right. Except I would say instead of top 10, top five or top three, even. Yeah, you're probably right. But you know, it was also just the loyalty. Like anybody who played with him just spoke glowingly of just how much of a incredible teammate and how loyal he was. I mean, the, the friendship between him and Pavel Bure, the fact that he named his son Bure. Um, one of my favorite Gino stories, and it obviously it, it had nothing to do with being on the ice, but there's a story where Gino went to Russia to go see Pavel and he couldn't find him. So he just walked into the KGB headquarters and said, take me to Pavel Bure. And they were like, who are you? What is going on? And just, you know, I, I, Gino, I, I guess he's what, 6'4", probably 240 pounds, just walks into the KGB headquarters of Moscow, take me to Pavel Bure. Like, just what an incredible story that is. And, you know, there was, uh, I believe it was IMAC again, or someone was saying how during that whole fiasco of the Messier era and how there was a big kind of, uh, rip in the dressing room between Messier and Linden. Gino was one of the guys that stood up and defending Linden. You know what I mean? And obviously there's that clip. And I remember watching the game live when I was a kid of the St. Louis blues where Gino's just running around challenging anybody on the blues to fight him. And there were some big tough guys on that blues team back then. And yeah, just the, the loyalty and how much he cared about his teammates and Pat Quinn taking a chance on him 
You know what I mean? And listening to Ron DeLorme, who was the scout who, you know, really pushed Quinn to draft him, he just never, ever forgot or, you know, that those guys believed in him and gave him a chance. And the other thing, too, and they brought it up in the broadcast last night, he was a very smart man. He was very well-educated. He spoke three languages. He, you know, obviously, he, he, he beat the odds by making it to the NHL and, for a guy who, you know, in a different era of a hockey player, made this much of an impact on this fan base, his teammates, it just goes to show you what a man he was. Yeah, that's that's really well said. I mean, you know, he mentioned that Blues game. That was an all-time classic. Uh, but, you know, I also think of the game where, for me, uh, was the penalty shot against Mike Vernon. Yep. And... Just not only did the uh, did the place just go absolutely nuts, but just Gino's reaction and, and his teammates, and you could see it like they were pretty much pouring off the bench for him. Like I think there, I think there was like more than there was more than five Canucks on the ice when he got back to the bench. So it's it's that, and I think at, at that time as well, right around the time that Gino and Pavel came in, you know, this team was was already two decades old, and besides eighty two. There wasn't much to get excited about. The 70s were rough. After 82, the 80s were really rough on this team. And until they drafted Trevor Linden, there wasn't really much hope. And Linden, I believe, was 88. And if I remember, it was second overall taken right behind Mike Medano, who also had a a fantastic career. But up until that point, there wasn't really any hope. And then when Pavel comes in and Gino, and it changed the culture of this team and and their friendship, you know, the two outsiders, this, this Russian skilled player who's still maybe the most skilled player who's ever played for the Canucks and this First Nations Algonquin giant from Quebec and the two of them how they became friends by being outsiders and formed this bond and that bond was really essential to the Canucks team because you you now had Pavel being able to do his thing and if anyone blinked at Pavel they had Gino right there. And let's not forget that also there was other Canucks guys that came in around that time. You know, Troy Crowder and Craig Cox was on the team and Ronnie Stern, not all at the same time, but like Donald Brashear, like during the 90s, the Canucks were a mean team. And they never, as, as good as those players were, they never replicated what Gino got from the fans and the respect that he got from his teammates. Not saying the other players weren't respected, but Gino in this city, and I know he played for the Isles and the Habs and there may be other teams as well, but it's not the same as the reaction that Gino gets here. And and when you have alumni members, and this also, you know, this this is why the Canucks didn't retire number one, because Kirk McLean, again, he was there last night. He's, he's everywhere. Alumni is important. Uh, and, and I know, again, if you weren't alive or you're too young to remember the early 90s, it was a really special and unique time in Vancouver. It was the first time in team history where we had a run of good years. We had that finals against the Rangers. It was it was just different then. And Gino was a big part of that and bringing that culture to the city in the dressing room. Yeah, I mean, you and I went to the Pavel Bure retirement game, Pete. And, you know, outside of Pavel Bure... And there was a lot of people there to honor Burray, you know, the honor of having his jersey retired by the team. The biggest pop was probably for Gino. I mean, Pat Quinn got an, an enormous pop as well, and we all miss Pat Quinn. 
Um, but Gino was arguably like in the whole crowd was chanting Gino, Gino. And it was Burray's night. And again, don't get me wrong, Burray was obviously honored. And even Burray, during his speech, during the ceremony, referenced Gino, you know, again, saying our friendship is a very special friendship. And you are one of like truly the most loyal and best friends I've ever had. And again, it just goes to show you not only, you know, what he did for his teammates on the ice, but the kind of man he was off the ice. And yeah, man, he's definitely, definitely going to be missed. I love how he uh, he showed up to that looking like he just walked off the Swiss Alps as well. You know, it was just. Uh, but I I I, I actually rewatched that uh, recently, and it was very touching. What well, you never see uh, any emotion really from Pavel Bure, and that was really touching. I thought, and uh, even when Gino came out and it was like the Gino chance, and he goes back and sits with Pat Quinn there. And he's, you can tell he's trying to be like, oh, it's not my moment. It's Pavel's. But he just, he was smiling, right? He was happy. And uh, uh, it's, that was one of, you know, way after the fact. But that's, that's one of my all-time favorite Gino moments is, was, uh, yeah, I think, I'm pretty sure we all stood and gave him a standing ovation. And if I remember as well, we were, uh, we were having drinks before going to that, as we often do. And we're like, I wonder if Gino's going to be there. And you're like, of course Gino's going to be there. Like, why wouldn't he be there? I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, course he is and uh and the way he got intro and everything that that was awesome yeah again you know it it was amazing night and i'm glad you and i got to share that moment and you know i i kind of wish i was at the game last night despite the canucks losing you know it would have been nice to see that and uh it was it was a really you know nice ceremony they had for him last night i thought and to have all the alumni guys come out even guys i wasn't expecting garth butcher who i said was probably my first favorite canuck nathan lafayette nathan well. lafayette yeah. yeah i mean it was it was a, it was a good cast of characters good to see a courtnell out there you know again having the the victoria connection good to see gary valk again yeah um as well and and I don't know if the team timed it with uh, the jerseys. Like, I know they've been teasing at this promo for a while, uh, but having the jerseys for that night, I don't know if they fast-forwarded it a couple games or if that was always going to be the game and it was just an amazing coincidence. Um, I feel both options are, 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 are there's, there's a good case for both. But having the, the jerseys out there for that as well was, was, was perfect. I'm glad that they were able to make that happen. Yeah, like you said, I don't know if... you. Know, they were planning to do this a little bit later in the season, and then it just got expedited with uh, Gino's passing. But it made sense that, hey, if we're going to debut the new version of the skate jersey, there's no better night to do it than the night we're honoring Gino Ojik. A hundred percent. Number 29. What do you think of the jerseys? I know there's been some pushback out there, but there's always pushback out there. Uh, what do you think about uh, the jerseys? Any issues with the lack of white on there or anything or any issues? I mean, I think I prefer the white outline. It does make it, at least in my opinion, it makes it pop a little bit more. Um, I still like them, though. I actually my one of my bigger issues with the jerseys is actually the collar. I was kind of wanting, you know, the red and yellow collar which it doesn't have it's just all black so actually for me personally yeah one of my bigger issues with the jersey is just there's no collar on it it's just all solid black i like the kind of red and yellow uh separation between the collar and the rest of the jersey what about yourself Pete? did you like the jerseys i I don't have an issue with it i I think 
you know, a lot of people are saying, oh, they, they, there's no white or it should have been just like the old ones. I'm always okay with tweaking things a little bit over time. Like teams do that. Even teams like the Maple Leafs have, have tweaked their Maple Leaf a bit over time. I'm okay with this because it's like a modern version of it. I need to see it up close. I need to go into the team store or something next time I'm at a game and uh, just see it up close to really kind of get my head around it. Uh, but I thought they looked great on TV. Um, and that's something right there. You know, I think, I think it's something the this fan base wanted for a long time. And people are saying this is something uh, that I've seen out there on social media as well, that, that kind of made me chuckle a bit is that people are saying, Oh, it's, this is getting used to cover up how bad the team is. I'm like, Look, we all know that the team is, is bad. That, there's no surprise there. But something like this, it doesn't just be like, oh, next week, let's wear the jerseys. There's a lot of work that goes into us. And we've seen a lot of the, the kind of guerrilla marketing campaigns, you know, whether it's flying the banners or stickers around the city or whatever else. Like, they've, they've put a lot of effort and thought into this. And I, I do feel that this is something they probably had planned at the start of the season. And this was a whole marketing campaign to get it going and get it organized. Um, but the, the idea that it's like, oh, we suck, so we're just going to put this all out, It's that's not an easy thing to, to pull off very, very quickly, and it, it takes some time to do that. Um, I think it was it's clever the way they did it. I, I think that uh, they, they listened to the fans, and the fans, like myself as well, I've... I, that we we know why we have the Orca logo, right? It's a remnant of the past and a dark remnant of the past. Uh, it really is the Orca Bay Sports and uh, the skate for me was what I grew up with. I, I'm I'm fine to bring it back and uh, mix things up a bit. We have had like a thousand jerseys in our existence. That's one thing I'll say, but that's also now a product of the NHL with with. Uh, with all the different jerseys and third jerseys. I mean, at the end of the day, the Canucks will have worn like four different jerseys this year, which is quite a bit. Um, but I, I'm, I'm happy with them. And I don't think this was something that just happened overnight because the team isn't playing well. I think that's pretty ridiculous. Uh, like that, that takes a lot of work to, to pull off. Yeah, I agree with you there. I, I think, is it convenient when it, they decided to showcase these jerseys to try to take some people's mind off how bad the team's doing. Sure. But I don't think that's the case at all. This would have been planned out. I mean, people forget the last, what, four or five games last year, the team played at home. They were wearing the skate Jersey. Um, and then they just announced today that the next, I believe it's the next 10 home games. They're going to be wearing the skate Jersey. Um, this new version of the skate Jersey. Uh, except, it is, except for the game against the Rangers. And I think one other one, which is kind of weird. Really? The Rangers game, they're not. That's weird. Mm. You think they would, not, considering the history of the 93-94 Cup, mm -hmm. but weird. Too sensitive, maybe. I don't know. I just now, I got to confirm that, but I saw a couple people saying that, so uh, I think that's out there. But yes, sorry, carry on. I just wanted to get that in there. I think it's 10, 10 of the next 11 or 12 home games, yes. Uh, the other thing I will say, um, and I, I'm interested to see when he'll be back, but we got to see both goalie masks last night for good, for, for bad reasons. But I actually thought both masks, I thought Spencer Martin's mask and Colin Delia's masks looked very sharp. I really like the masks. I'm interest, interested to see what uh, Demko's mask will look like if he ends up coming back this year. We haven't really had an update on Demko. I know they originally said he should be back mid-January, and I know he was on the team. He traveled with the team, pardon me, on this road trip, but there's been no iteration or thought of when he's actually going to suit back up and play a game, and 
my perspective is I would rather him just take as long as he needs to kind of get healthy and get better. I, there's no point in rushing him back in my mind. But yeah, I thought the, the guerrilla marketing behind the free the skate movement was really good. Also friend of the show, Trent Leaf, who we, we've had on the podcast. Uh, he write, writes for the blog uh, Stadium Chinatown. Great little blog. You guys should definitely check it out if you're not reading uh, the content on there. Uh, he was kind of one of the ones that was kind of putting the tinfoil hat on before this all really started happening. And he was looking at the little promo video with Colby Smolders and stuff like that. And so he actually kind of was saying that he thought this was going to happen months ago. And then all of a sudden we started seeing the guerrilla marketing and all these clues that led to his conspiracy theory uh, becoming an actual theory that, yeah, they have indeed freed the skate. Here's a question for you, Pete. Do you think they'll make the switch maybe in two years from now, full-time, to the skate jersey? Man, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Like, um, I've thought about this, and it's a big move to do that. Now, I feel like this Canucks team is really embedded in the blue and green colors, and I think it would be... Tough. I think it's tough for them to get away from that. I do. I do feel that. Like, I mean, going to the black, red, and yellow. Black's not a very welcoming color a lot of the time. And if you're doing it red and yellow, then you're just going to look like Calgary. And red and yellow isn't really Vancouver colors. Although, if you look at what I'm wearing right now, I'm wearing my. Well, I guess it's red and gold. I'm wearing one of the Canucks uh, Lunar New Year's uh, shirts. But I don't know. Like. I've always thought it'd be cool to see as well, like the orca in like the skate colors and the skate in the orca colors. I don't, I don't know if they're going to go full time with it. Um, but who knows? Maybe they'll be rotating jerseys uh, like they always do. Um, I think they'll, they're going to listen though. I think they're going to listen to fans and uh, the feedback. I, I, I'm glad they got rid of the Vancouver on the jerseys. I thought that looked horrible. Um, and, uh, yeah, Doug, I don't know, man. It's uh I, I'm not sure. I just think that I feel like the team is really attached. And there is also something to be said that those are the original colors and they are the West Coast colors. And so I think I guess my guess would be they keep the blue and green and they keep the uh orca for now. Um and maybe you start rolling in the skates for select games maybe we see you know 15 20 home games as many as that where they do the skate and make it like a a special promo thing throughout the year and get lends itself to all sorts of possibilities of doing like 90s throwback nights or you know 90s price beer nights that wouldn't that be something if uh, we had that <laughs> i don't i don't get 90s price beer nights uh, anytime come on Canucks, come on come on that's 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 <laughs> what i'm here for uh, i love that but uh yeah, I don't know. I'm not sold that they are yet. It's it's tough to read because again, like like I said, I think they've worn four jerseys this year, and you know we've seen the skate, we've seen the millionaires, we've seen the the rink, we we haven't seen the V. Uh, but man, like it's yeah, it's I don't know, man. I, I'm not convinced yet, but I think they are going to listen. Yeah, I mean the fact that they had their 50th year anniversary and they had the the 50 year patch on the skate jersey. To me, I, I, if the fans want it, and they, I mean, let's be honest, let's call it spade a spade. If they think they can make a bunch of money off it by selling a whole new young generation skate jerseys, I think they're going to do it. And I, I actually really would like to see the the jersey in white. 
you know, I know in the nineties, the home Jersey was white and the road team would always wear, uh, the darker color, whether that was a blue, a black. And I, I actually would like to see, uh, a version of this in white because um, I think that could look really, really sharp as well. Right now, they only seem to ever do it as the home jersey, which obviously is going to be in black. Because, makes sense. Uh, yeah, but I, 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 I do think that you might see a change um, in the next year or two here. I really do. Also, remember, there's the yellow jersey as well at home before the white jersey. During the 80s, it was a yellow home jersey during the one of my favorites, the Petri Scrico era. And, and when Trevor Linden came into the league, the home jersey was the yellow skate. Yeah, so that every time I played Chell, that would actually be the jersey I would always wear because it stood out so much. that Because, you know, when you play someone and then all of a sudden, oh, shit, I'm, I'm playing a team that also has a blue jersey and I picked the blue jersey and now I don't know who I'm passing to. So I would always go with the yellow with the skate on the front because no teams have, well, maybe Nashville, but again, generally speaking, no teams have the bright yellow jersey. And when anytime I would play NHL uh, for PlayStation, I would always pick that jersey that you're referencing, Pete. Beauty. And, and you know what? Like... The Canucks or Vancouver does have a history with those colors, I should say, as well. Uh, before the Canucks with the Vancouver Blazers, I know they were only around for two years, but they had that color scheme uh, as as well. So there is a little bit of, of prehistory with that. Uh, also, they just look really good on TV. There's no other team that has that color scheme. And uh, I, I think they do look really good. And, and other fans around the league, say a lot of people say that's the best jersey, not from their city. Yeah, uh, I I I really like it. Obviously, I'm a little bit biased. Growing up in that era, it's nostalgic for me. Um, I would like to see them make the change. I, I do agree with you that the blue and the green colors are better representation of the West Coast. And you can even make an argument that the Orca is a good representation of the West Coast. But the unfortunate truth behind the Orca logo had nothing to do with an Orca and the West Coast, it had to do with Orca Bay, who bought the team from the Griffiths fam- family. And man, you know what? We're like we're like half an hour in here, and uh, we we haven't we haven't done our plugs, we haven't done anything. It's just being Gino and the jerseys, which is fair enough. I mean, Gino, we could talk all episode about Gino, uh, one of our all time favorites, and the jerseys are uh, a big deal. But I think we got to keep this moving because we also got Brendan here, who's got. Uh, some stuff to talk to us about today. He's going to talk about coaching. Um, and Doug, what what is going on in your world? I mean, we haven't even gotten into that. How are you doing? We're both just coming out of the gates flying here. How's things? Uh, yeah, things have been pretty good. Uh, it's been a pretty busy week uh, at work for me. So I'm just trying to kind of catch up on a couple of things. Um, but yeah, overall, it's good. Uh, looking forward to the weekend uh, and just kind of having a chill weekend uh Obviously, we we went and met up and watched some football and hockey last week, but uh, I'm looking forward to kind of having more of a chilled, relaxed weekend this week. What about yourself, Pete? How's the week been for you? It's been pretty busy as well. Uh, Made a couple of beers that I think are going to turn out pretty good, so I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah, last weekend, well, I saw you on Saturday. We had a good little crew to watch all the sports. That was was good fun. Eat some burgers and drink some beer and watch uh, sports and... Uh, yeah, but otherwise, just kind of just just trodding along really right now. Nothing, nothing too crazy. Um, and folks, you can also follow us on Twitter. I'm at Pete underscore gas. The podcast is at Canuck Speak. You can give me a follow on Twitter at Doug Venn. 
And check out the Speakeasy outro playlist on Spotify. Pete and I have put together a playlist of every song we use during the outro segment of each episode, and another jam will be added to that playlist at the end of this episode. And Doug, you edited the last episode, so tell us a little bit about the song that you chose. Yeah, so I went with a Canadian band who we have used once before. Uh, They're called Caribou, and the song is called can't do without you and it's the extended mix version which has a really awesome intro um i know when you and i are editing episodes we'll have a couple of songs in our back burner oh this is the song i want to use but the outro goes a little bit longer than expected so we have to kind of shelf that so i specifically picked the longer extended mix because i knew it was a long version of this song and yeah i mean caribou dan snaith is kind of the mastermind behind the group He has a side project as well called Daphne, which is a little bit heavier in the house electronic stuff. But Caribou is an amazing band. I've yet to see them live, but I've had a couple of friends who have seen them live over the years. And they just say how incredible they are, their live performances are. So yeah, Caribou can't do without you. I've never seen live either, but yeah, we used the track, I believe it was Home was the track we used way back a couple of years ago. We used that as one of the outros, didn't we? Yes, that's correct. Uh, that's a good good choice, man. Uh, definitely like, also gets our CanCon up, right? We, we, need to, we need to be mindful of that for when, when they come after us and say we don't have enough Canadian artists. Um, Doug, we got Brendan here. Uh, but before we do that, I just wanted to quickly bring up something else uh, that's been a hot-button topic in the NHL the last couple days, not pertaining to the Canucks, but uh, pertaining to Philadelphia Flyers defenseman Ivan Provorov and him not wearing the pride jersey for the Philadelphia Flyers during the warm-up. Didn't come out for the warm-up. Um what do you what do you what do you think of all this, Doug? I mean, I know Provorov had been mentioned in the, as like maybe a Canucks trade target. I don't see that happening anymore. Um, but what are your thoughts on Provorov? Is he out of line to do what he did, or is he team out of line to ask him to do it? Or what do you think? I mean, I think it's one of those situations where. I mean, it's 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 a little bit more complicated. I don't think it's just black and white. My personal stance on the situation is, yeah, I think he should have taken part in the Pride celebrations. I think he should have put on the warm-up jerseys and the, used the rainbow tape. Um, the excuse he used, and I'm not saying, you know, this isn't true, is, oh, because of his religious beliefs, he was not going to partake in it. Um, I find that a little bit rich because I've seen people say that he seems to use his religious beliefs when it's convenient to use his religious beliefs. Uh, He had a child out of wedlock. I would assume that's against his religious beliefs. Um, There's been a lot of things that people do and say when it's convenient for them to be religious and then when it's not convenient for them to be religious. I also think being Russian, um, there is a lot more pressure probably back home on him to not do things like this. He said he's Rush, Russian Orthodox. And the, I guess, main person behind the Russian Orthodox religion is very, very tight with Vladimir Putin. Um, credit to uh, Halford and Bruff, 
but Bruff was saying after the fallout of this whole situation that one of the reasons, again, I don't know the guy's name, but the, the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, one of the reasons he was justifying Russia's invasion of Ukraine was because of the blasphemous talk and celebration of the LGBTQ plus people and the fact that they were doing pride parades and, you know, that propaganda needed to be stopped and blatant bullshit, um, in my opinion. But I think, I, I do think it's a little bit, I, I don't agree with what Provorov did at all. And Cody Sweet, friend of the show, he's been on the show. He put an amazing thread out there. If you haven't had a chance to read it, you should really read it because it explains as someone who is a part of the LGBTQ community, he explains, you know, why it is important to him to see people do this, to make him feel more accepted into the sport and to not feel like he's an outcast or an outsider. Um, I do think the Russian factor, and I hate to give Provorov that kind of an excuse, but I do think that plays into it a little bit. But I also think it's bullshit because you've got guys like G, or, uh, uh, Gino Malkin who who have participated in Pride Night more than once. And, and the other thing that came out too is Pavel Datsuk had similar stance. Uh, I think it was during the Olympics uh, a couple of years ago, he made some disparaging comments towards the LGBT, LGBTQ plus community. Um, and yeah, so it's it's not a good look for Provorov. It's not a good look for the NHL, unfortunately. What are your thoughts? No, Pete? no. I mean, I, I get mo- pretty much what, what you're saying. Uh, I agree. It's not a good look. Um, it would uh, they, they gave the player the choice. He chose not to do it. When you're in the public spotlight, there's going to be questions and there's going to be consequences. Maybe that's not the right word, but there but there are going to be reactions to your actions. Um, hiding behind, again, I don't want to say this poorly because uh, I don't I don't have any problem with religion. And if you're a religious person, that's fine. But I do think hiding behind something like that is is a way of just kind of justifying homophobia i guess yeah. is how i feel about it you know I agree. um because i uh i have well even a good example is my my mom's religious but she was also the first person to ever introduce me to uh, uh gay family friends right and uh, and you know not to get all theological but she's like you know it's it she's like it the Bible never says that there's anything wrong with that. People misinterpret things and take things out of context. And she says, you know, love one another. And that's the most important thing. And and uh, that's kind of what, what I think, too, is like if you're going to take some puny line of text that's misinterpreted or taken out of context and doesn't mean what it, it means. And again, my mom is also was a biblical studies teacher at the University of Victoria and taught theology classes like she's not a dumb dumb. She knows her shit. She's a Princeton grad. And uh, she's like, this is uh, it's not what it meant. It's just being taken out of context to serve certain people's needs and, and voices. Um, the most important thing is to, to love everyone. So if you're using that as an excuse for me, it's a weak excuse. Um, I know a lot of people who are religious. There's churches here in Vancouver that have pride flags and be yeah. inclusive. Uh, and so and I know, yeah, like what you said, Russia is different, Russian Orthodox, and, and it's complicated over there. But uh, to me, it's still, it's not a good look. It goes against a lot of what, 
the NHL has done. There's still a lot of positive stuff out there that the NHL does. Unfortunately, like most things, we focus on the one bad. Um, but yeah, it's his choice to do that and his choice to use religion as uh, the shield for it. So, uh, you know, he's going to have to deal with that. But I don't agree with what he did either. Yeah. And, you know, I have friends and family members that are very religious and, you know, they're some of them are a little bit more stubborn on some of these issues than others. But generally speaking, like you said, Pete, you know, at the end of the day, the main thing that the Bible teaches is to love one each one another. You know what I mean? And at the end of the day, again, I'm not an overly religious person whatsoever. The Bible says the only person who should be judging anybody is God. You know what I mean? It's not your job to judge them. It's not my job to judge them or anybody in this for that matter. Um, I also thought it was a little bit cowardice from the Philadelphia Flyers, just the the statement they made afterwards because they didn't actually address any of what happened in the controversy with Provorov and it's tough, right? Because then you get all the freedom fighters coming in, all oh, freedom of speech. Why should he be forced to do this? And yada, 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 you know, and, and I get that. I get that. But I also think people have to realize that there are so many people in this world that have been marginalized, um, whether it's through sexual orientation, gender identity, or race, even religious beliefs. You know, there have been people who of religious backgrounds that have been marginalized over the years. And, you know, the whole point of nights like that are to try to make everybody feel included, try to make everybody feel like they're welcome and that they can come watch the sport and, you know, not feel like they're an outsider because of their sexual orientation or because of their racial background. You know what I mean? It's just like, it's, that's the whole point of it. And I think sometimes that gets missed by some of these people who, take a stance like Provorov did. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a good point uh, as well. Um, Doug, let's, uh, let's get Brendan on here to uh, talk a little bit. Jabberin with Jabo. Did I say Jabberin? That's not even a word. Jabbering with Jabo. <laughs> uh, and he's going to talk about coaching. So uh, let's hear from Brendan. All right, so this week I want to discuss Fartgate. No, joking. I'm sure others on this show will be discussing Fartgate. I will not be discussing Fartgate. I'll be discussing something else. Um, That being coaching. Uh, And the coaching change that I think most people agree is on the verge of happening at some point here, sooner rather than later. Um, I mean, I think it seems pretty clear that Rick Tockett's going to be the guy. Um, have heard nothing to dissuade me in the belief that he'll be the next coach. Um, probably coming quite soon here. Could happen, um, within a week. Um, so, you know, you look at this team, you know, they lose against Tampa and you watch them and, and, and the effort was there. You know, this team hasn't quit on Bruce from a from a, from an effort standpoint. They go out and they try. The issue with this team, from a coaching standpoint, is 
that effort, I mean, is all over the place and doesn't lead to doing the right things. Um, which has been an issue for this team, not just, I mean, this goes beyond Bruce Boudreaux. It goes on for quite a while before that as well, where there would be effort there, but the effort didn't make any sense. You know, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time watching Abbotsford play. Um, I, I implore everybody to do that. I think they're playing a good brand of hockey. Um, both from an effort standpoint, but also structurally as well. And, you know, you're getting guys, you know, you watched, used to watch Hoglander up in Vancouver, and the effort was always there. There was no issue with what he, with the, with what he was putting out there. The problem was is that effort didn't always equate to much. A lot of the time that effort could lead to mistakes, you know, especially defensively. Um, and so that that word that I use so often, structure. I mean, that's the main hope with Rick talking coming in. Let's, let's make one thing quite clear. I don't think structure cures all the issues and makes this team a contender. I don't. I don't believe that, that, that uh, you can do that alone and get this team where you want it to go. But I've said this for a very long time that I think that's an important building block um, towards getting yourself to a place where you want to be. And at the very least, as this this regime begins the process of uh, tearing down part of the roster and rebuilding it in the image that they want, you want that structure in place. You want a group of guys that are there, the ones that are going to be here long term, that are playing within a system and they're comfortable in it, they're confident in it, and they know where they have to be. So as you introduce players, you're not, you're not introducing new players into chaos. You're introducing new players into something that's a little more comfortable and they feel like they can come in here, learn the system, and hit the ground running. Because so often... You know, you bring in new players, and we've seen it with the Canucks here over the years. You bring in new players that, you know, I mean, that that had a pedigree elsewhere, and they struggle here. And it's because there's no trust, there's no confidence in what they're in what they're doing. So that's the major hope. I mean, I think, you know, for for those of us, and I think most of us have some sort of a recollection of the way that that Talkett coached in Arizona. And it was really was catered to what that team was good at or what that team had in terms of a roster, which wasn't a lot. Certainly they were more, they were, you know, very veteran on the back end. So, you know, you could build a more structured defensive system. I mean, I don't know if that's necessarily quite what he will have, what he would bring here if in fact he is the next head coach of the team. But I, I would say that my hope is it would be it would lend itself to be a little more on the defensive end, on the defensive side. You know, there was a, a the goal last night, uh, and I believe it was Kucherov on a one-timer. And you had your two defensemen, veteran defensemen, Tyler Myers and, and, and Oliver, Oliver Ekman Larson, that were literally a foot apart from each other, standing in front of the net, Neither of them taking anybody. Now, these are two guys that have been in the league for around a decade. 
And you don't last in the NHL a decade by not knowing what you're doing in your own end. So, you know, and this, there's this idea out there that it's their age, they're too old now. And again, I'm not arguing that these guys are long-term solutions, but they're, because they're not. They're, they're in all likelihood, at least, I mean, in the next two years, one or both of them will be gone. I think Myers is assured to be gone, if not this offseason, by the next offseason. And OEL, I mean, they're, they're stuck with them. What they can do with them, whether buy them out, buy him out or what, I don't know. But you can't tell me the two guys that have been in this league that long are that inept or that stupid. They're not. These are smart guys. These are smart hockey players that just need every player. I don't care how veteran you are. You need guidance. And this team hasn't had it. I'd say, I, I will argue going back, I mean, probably back to, uh, to, to Davino. I mean, you had a you had Tortorella, but Tortorella was here for so short of a time that it was hard to hard to tell what that would have been, and it was probably the wrong team for what he was looking to do. Um, so the goal now, again, you get your coach in, he begins to implement that structure and really re, rebuild a trust within the group, because when you play with that trust, when you play within that structure. It's amazing how much better a team looks, how much faster that a team looks. I don't think this Canucks team is nearly as slow as some people would like to think that they are. I don't think I don't think that uh, they're so slow that they can't keep up in today's NHL or anything like that. I just think when you're not playing, you know, in a proper system where there's trust between you know the five guys on the ice at any given any given time, uh, you tend to look disjointed and quite slow. So it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting here. You know, you hear Tockett's name. You hear Gonchar, um, who was lauded for the job he did um, during Pittsburgh's uh, second Stanley Cup uh, run uh, with the defense that was out without Chris Letang. Um, didn't really have much there, but he was able to. He was lauded for really pulling that group together. So, you know, you get him. Who the other coach will be? I mean, I, I my hope is it is a more of a veteran voice. Um, that can really help out with, with talking in terms of systems. But uh, we'll see here. Um, either way, I have my expectation that you, that, that you bring in your guy and the hope is that they are on the same page with management in terms of systems, in terms of the way they want this team playing, and then you start building out from there. Uh, it'll be an interesting one. We'll talk it, but by the time I'm talking to you next week, we'll talk it be the coach. Uh, that'll be anyone's guess, but... If that is the case, we'll have a lot more to talk about as as, uh, uh, as this team continues on towards the end of the season. Um, a slow march, sadly. We'll talk to you next week. All right. Thanks, Brandon. You know, I was really excited for a minute there. I thought we were going to talk about Fartgate for eight minutes uh, and uh, get to the bottom of, of who that was or whether it really was Colin Delia's pad or skate or whatever. Uh, that was <laughs> that was a that was a funny moment though. Uh, though last night, I, I got a real kick out of that and the videos going around uh, of that. But that was that for me. That was one of the highlights uh, uh, of the night. Um, but coaching is Rick Tockett really is? Are we really that close to Rick Tockett? Do you think? I mean, it, it, it sounds like it, right? All indications point to Tockett as the guy. 
Uh, I know there was a report today. I again, I don't really know the source that said that the Canucks had also interviewed Mike Babcock. Um, I'm not a big Babcock fan. Talk it, you know, he does come across as quite surly. Uh, the one thing that Brendan said that I agree with is, you know, Gonchar. If Gonchar's part of the coaching staff coming in, I am very ecstatic about that. I think that would be really good. Um, and I do think Talkit does seem to be a guy that is more defensive structured and defensive orientated. Um, and I think he will hold players a little bit more accountable than Boudreaux does. Boudreaux is the guy that everybody likes, and that's good. But I do think right now this team, they, you know, the, the honeymoon period of Boudreaux coming in last year and making everybody feeling warm and fuzzies over, and they haven't been able to kind of take that next step. Uh, and like Brendan said, you know, the players really do like Boudreaux, and they are playing for him. You know, they went down 4 nothing to Tampa after the first period last night. And they battled and clawed their way back. You know, they only got two goals. They, they didn't mount the comeback all the way. But they were still fighting, you know, all the way up to the end of the game. And so I, yeah, it sounds like talk, if you believe some of the rumors out there on social media and Twitter at the moment, uh, the belief is Monday will be the day that talk it is officially hired as the Canucks new head coach. I'll believe it when I see it. There's so much noise out there. Uh, it just like wake me up when it happens kind of thing here because uh, there's just so much noise about this team. There's so much conflicting info about this team. I just, you know, just tell me when it happens. Um, I'm still, you know, I'm still on the idea of like just ride it out with Boudreaux and I know that that's uh, probably an unpopular opinion with some but for me like this season is lost you may as well just keep the guy in there now I know some people say it's oh well let's get this new guy in and start teaching systems all that's going to do though is move the team farther away from a, a better spot um, I am excited though as well about Sergey Gonchar uh, Sergey Gonchar played over 1300 games in the NHL uh, he's assistant in Pittsburgh so again more Pittsburgh connections we're just bringing all those guys over but hey Pittsburgh won cups so, you know, I'm, I'm okay with that. But another thing that gets lost in this, and, you know, I mentioned uh, about Gonchar and how he was able to work with a blue line that really didn't have much and got the Stanley Cup. You have a Russian-speaking coach as well. Uh, it's a little thing, but you assume that Pod Colson's going to be back on this team at some point, and if Kuzmenko resigns. That's three of your 23 guys who are Russians. And that's not even counting Danila Klimovich, who's another Russian speaker as well. It's a little thing, but I think that's uh, that's something that hasn't gotten talked about as well. I'd be all for, though, Sergei Gonchar coming in. Rick Tockett, yeah, I mean, there, there are shades of this being Tortorella all over again. I, I know he's uh, a hard coach. It'd be very different from what Bruce has, but we we need a change. Uh, we we all know we do, whether it's now or whether it's at the end of the season. This this atmosphere with Vancouver just isn't working. I think a guy like JT Miller would really thrive under Rick Tockett. Kind of a, a similar game, maybe a little less physical than Tockett was. Um, but it, it just seems now like it, it, that's all you're hearing. Tockett, you're hearing Monday is the day. Um, I, I'm not sold though. Uh, it doesn't mean I, I'm right. It just means I'm not, I don't believe it. I'll believe it when I see it, I guess. Yeah. I, I think there's a lot to unpack with what you just said, but 
Yeah, I, I agree. Like, I think so. I think we thought that with Ryan Kessler and John Tortorella, right? I think we thought, oh, you know, Kessler and Tortorella, that's going to be a really good match. And apparently Tortorella, you know, and Kessler almost fought on the ice because Torts kept pushing him and punching him. You know what I mean? I, there was that story that Kess shared on, uh, I think it was Spitting Chicklets or something. There was highlights going around on Twitter about it. Um, I th- I think Talkit was also credited with uh, Phil Kessel in Pittsburgh and kind of being the Phil Kessel whisperer in Pittsburgh and kind of got full value out of Kessel. So he does seem to be able to motivate players who are underperforming and, you know, whether or not he's going to be able to do that with everybody on the roster, who knows? I doubt it. Um, and then just going back to the Gonchar thing, yeah, having a Russian-speaking coach I think is actually... I, I think it's beneficial to this team. And there's also that defenseman the Canucks drafted this past year, Zlodiev, I think his name is, or, or mm-hmm. Crud, I, I again, I don't, I, I don't know his name off the top of my head, but they drafted him in the seventh round, and he's actually playing very well in the CHL for a seventh-round pick. Um, and he's a young Russian defenseman as well, and there's actually a couple of Russian defensemen in this upcoming draft that are both slated to go in the first round. Now, I know most Canuck fans are hoping we get the first overall pick and uh, get Bedard, and I highly doubt that's going to happen. However, um, there are a couple of young Russian defensemen that are up for to be drafted in the first round, and having a guy like Gonchar could definitely ease them in to the big club and when they eventually get here. I don't agree with you with uh, holding on to Bruce Boudreaux. I just feel like, you know, when you've got comments from Rutherford saying he's talked to other coaches and criticizing Boudreaux pretty much from the get-go. Like, when he made that comment that he didn't even know Boudreaux was signed beyond last year, you know, right out the gate. That was even before the Canucks really started to kind of stub their toes at the beginning of the season. He just hasn't had any any confidence in Boudreaux and what he can do as a coach. And I don't think that's fair to him. And I also don't think that's fair to, to the team. I mean, you heard Bo Horvat's comments last night about, you know, how, what he thought of the way Boudreaux kind of being treated. He said it in you know a roundabout way and even how his name's been out there in trade rumors and stuff like that. And he deleted Twitter so he can kind of, you know, keep all the noise out of his head and stuff like that. So I do think having this distraction of the coach, you know, being fired and the president of hockey operations not having any faith in him, I do think it's having an effect in the dressing room as well. I, I get that. I just... I'm just worried about getting stuck in what we like to call the mushy middle, right? Like we are right now, I got it open here. We are sitting 27th in the NHL. That is sixth worst. That means we'd be picking in the top eight. I don't really want to move up from there right now. You know, like that's, that's my only argument with it. Yes, I get that. There's a lot of noise in the dressing room when you have your coach, who's likely gone. You got your captain who's likely gone. You got a couple other guys. It's not good on a lot of levels. I just don't want to, you know, the Canucks won two of their last 10. I don't want to see a new coach come in and the Canucks rattle off five wins in a row. If the Canucks were to rattle off five wins in a row without, let's just say in like some fluke scenario, all the teams ahead of them don't win five in a row. The Canucks would jump from 27th in the league all the way up to 18th, you know, and then you're just right. Then all of a sudden now you're either picking in the top three or more likely you're picking between 13 and 15. And that's what I want to avoid. And that's my whole thing about, I, I get it. I just, I don't want them to 
play too much better and get themselves out of where they are. Like, I mean, they're close to the bottom five here right now. And the top five in this draft is a really good top five. But there's a lot of noise and there's a lot of noise across all fronts. And it's not just Bruce, but you feel that they've they've kind of done Bruce a bit dirty here. Yeah, I mean, look, I know people, you always get the people who say, oh, well, he makes millions of dollars and he he works a job that he's inevitably going to be fired for. You know, coaching is one of the most thankless jobs there is because everybody eventually gets fired or there's this like awkward, oh, I'm stepping away kind of moment. Um, but I, yeah, I just, I, like if you don't believe in the guy and he, obviously, you know, he, you don't think that the team plays with enough structure. And when you watch the Canucks, it looks like that very much so that, you know, they don't have a lot of structure to their game. Obviously part of it is the personnel, but part of it is the systems put in place by the coaching staff or the lack there of those systems and not being able to adapt your style of coaching to the players you have. And I hate to bring this up. I always bring this up, even though he's struggled a little bit the last couple of years, but I always go to the Bill Belichick model where Belichick's one of those guys. He adjusts. He's more of a defensive play, coach for sure, but he always adjusts the way he coaches and his strategies with the personnel he has. The year he had Brady and Randy Moss and they were breaking almost every offensive record as a wide receiver quarterback tandem. He opened up the playbook and they were playing far more offensively, uh, because that's the personnel he had when he doesn't have that. I mean, I look back to the game last year in Buffalo, the crazy snow game where Mac Jones threw the ball three times in the entire game and they still won the game. And I think sometimes you see these coaches, they get so stuck in their way. This is how I coach. It's like, okay, I get that. Ideally, sure. But if you don't have the horses to coach that way, you need to adapt and you need to do what is best to try to win games. And I think that is one of the issues with Boudreaux right now. And I think that is an issue with a number of coaches across many different sports and many different teams. Uh, maybe one day we'll get through an episode without you bringing up Bill Belichick. Uh, that, would, that would be awesome. <laughs> Um, look, the press conference, we haven't even really talked about the press conference, but the press conference, it's certainly, I mean, mentioning that you're talking to other coaches, uh, that, that's pretty tough. I mean, right, like, I don't know what is being communicated between Rutherford and Boudreaux. Maybe there's open communication lines, maybe from the start of the year. They, I, I We don't know everything. It, but, yeah, saying at that press conference, all that does in this city is just throw more fuel on the fire. Um, I, I don't know the whole story though. So I'm not going to say he's being done dirty. Uh, at the end, like my thought on it is that if the team was playing better, we, we wouldn't even be in this situation. Right. And so, uh, like we, we aren't playing well, so it's, we can't keep him around regardless, but I also just, I don't want to do it yet um but man also that that press conference like we we, we aren't even like we're gonna get through this whole episode without actually talking about anything that's really happened on the ice you know like not about how quinn hughes is being shooting the puck more all of a sudden has been looking kind of rejuvenated or you know jt miller has seemed to have upped his two-way game a little bit or how our goaltending just can't do much right these days it seems or or how our secondary scoring is is dissolved it's all off the ice stuff 
this this week. I mean, that press conference was loaded with so many tidbits, whether it's throwing the coach under, whether it's saying major surgery, whether it's having the doctors come out to talk about Tanner Pearson because that whole story just also blew up. I mean, it's been uh, it's been a hell of a week in this city. Yeah, I mean, the catalyst to the press conference were the comments that Quinn Hughes made post game uh, about Tanner Pearson's injury and how it wasn't handled well. And Pearson has now had three or four surgeries. And one of the things that I thought was very, I get, I don't, I don't know if concerning is the right word, but confusing, I guess, would be is the fact that Rutherford, Alvin. And Boudreaux didn't know Pearson had, and I don't know if we should be saying the word surgeries because I think uh, Dolly Wall said procedures. What we you know, I don't know what constitutes a procedure and what constitutes a surgery. But the fact that he had three or four procedures, uh, one surgery for sure, and none of those guys knew. Alvin apparently didn't know that. Rutherford didn't know that. Uh, Boudreaux didn't know that. To me, that's kind of concerning, and obviously. Quinn Hughes knew that because Quinn Hughes obviously is close with Pearson. I know a lot of the teams, despite whether you love Pearson's contract and his performance on the ice, he does seem like a guy who's very well liked and respected in that dressing room. Um, And, you know, I I actually kind of give credit to Quinn Hughes and I don't know if he meant to do it or maybe he did, but I kind of give credit to Quinn Hughes for kind of making that statement because more often than not, professional athletes don't make any kind of statement like that publicly to the media about uh, a teammate. And I guess a little bit of context, if you don't know, I'm sure most people do, but the, that day it was announced that Tanner Pearson was done for the season and he was had a setback with uh, his wrist injury. And Quinn Hughes was just asked, it wasn't like they were trying to tee him up for anything. He was just asked a very nonchalant question in regards to you know the hearing the news about Tanner Pearson being done for the season and then he gave that little tidbit so that and then like you said there were so many things in that press conference one you know he said we're going to do a retool not a rebuild then he said they want to target these reclamation projects I I was like is this Jim Benning talking like we've already (laughs) done this like what what are you talking about and then he said, we need major surgery. It's like, okay, do we need major surgery, but we're not doing a full rebuild. We're just doing a retool. Um, yeah, you know, he said a lot of our players we're trying to trade don't have value across the league. Well, that just makes even those players less valuable, in my opinion, you know. Then he said something about Bo Horvat, you know, and they're not going to pay him for what he's done this season but for what he's done the seasons previous. And I get it, you know, maybe this is an outlier season, but Horvat did score 30 goals last year. And I'm also for trading Horvat at this point. I do think you need to kind of get younger and try to get some future assets for him. And I do think he is the top. I, I don't remember a year heading into the trade deadline, and maybe you do, Pete, where the Canucks had the number one coveted asset heading into the trade deadline. And I think there is a chance for them to really be able to cash in. But yeah, I mean, if there's anything I will give Rutherford credit for is he is not afraid to overshare. There, there, Yeah, I mean, all those things you mentioned, uh, the uh, reclamation project, certainly I didn't like the sound of that. 
my first thought was guys like Lyndon Vay. And we've had so many of these guys that we've tried to turn around. I mean, you could even argue that Ethan Bear is a reclamation project in, in a way. Uh, he's better than a lot of the reclamation projects we've had. But, you know, the Sea of Grandlands era, like we got guys in the lineup like uh, Studnika. He's a reclamation project. Uh, 100% he is. That I didn't like to Ethan hear. Ethan Bear? I said, just said Ethan Bear. Oh, did you? Sorry. Yeah, yeah. I, oh, you're just he's tuning me out again. Uh, he's, no, he's sorry, sorry. Rick Dollywall's there. reporting, uh, nothing major, but he's saying that he's hearing that uh, Horvat talks are ramping up with teams across the league right now, like right. a lot more than they were in the last 24 hours. So sorry. Well, I, that's good. My bad. My bad. Well, Doug, <laughs> Doug's breaking news to me uh, and ignoring me. That's that's all right. That's, that's fair enough. <laughs> the, uh, the whole retool rebuild thing. Now, this is something, again, that we've heard. And, you know, and this is all just roots of, of, of Benning and just has that, that smell about it. I mean, is this different? We don't know. And it's very scary to look down this. The, my whole thing, and I've said this before, uh, there's differences between a retool and a rebuild. It really comes down to do you believe that you have something with your core players? And this is something, you know, anyone listening – do you really believe that Elias Patterson, Quinn Hughes, Thatcher Demko, those, it starts with those guys. Do you believe that there's something there with them? If you do, then you rebuild, or sorry, retool uh, on the fly. You're, you're looking more of a retool, and you have some assets to do that. And what a retool means, Bo Horvat's gone. You have to seriously look at Kuzmenko, what you're doing with him. Luke Shen, gone. You're going to have to look at moving money and whether it's like I've suggested before, I'm still on the OAL buyout train uh, after this year. I, I still think that that's a better move for the team. And I know a lot of people disagree with me because that's eight years of, well, really only seven because the first year is hardly anything on the cap because that's a long pill, tough pill to swallow, but they need to carve out salary cap space. So for me, it, it's like you, then you start retooling, you bring in your new coaches and you you retool around those. A rebuild, to me, involves trading possibly everyone I just mentioned there. And the only exception might be Pedersen. But when his contract's up, if they're doing all that, you're, you may be looking at having to trade him anyways, a la Matthew Kachuk. And so that's really the, the question I have for a lot of fans out there is, like, what do you think? Is Do you think that you have something with this core? I'm still... On the fence. I love Pedersen. Um, I I don't know uh, if we have enough. Although Quinn Hughes has looked really good lately. And Thatcher Demko, I know he's had a rough year, so I'm a little bit skewed with that. But if you get Demko back to bubble Demko, if Hughes keeps playing like this and Petey keeps playing like that, then yeah, I think you do have something. But to me, a retool does not involve reclamation projects. It is not what you want to do. You're either getting guys who are already proven and can do something or you're getting picks and prospects. I don't want any reclamation projects. That just hasn't worked for the last decade, really. Ethan Bear and the current roster might be the only exception, but he's far from a perfect player, but he's just at least been a serviceable defenseman for this team. And all of a sudden, he's I think he's 11th on the team in scoring already. Yeah. Look, I also think the thing that they're going to be looking for young players instead of picks. So I think if you were to ask mo most fans what a rebuild would be, I think it would be everybody's on the table for futures picks. And yes, if you can get a young, relatively established prospect who just hasn't been able to, you know, make it yet, you know, you would get them. But I think most people think you're going to hold on to 
Demko, Hughes, and Petey, right? Those are kind of the three main parts of the core. And I think when we hear retool from Rutherford, we we think that he's going to hold on to more than those three players and that they're going to want, they, they prefer established prospects over draft picks. But my argument to that, because he's like, oh, these players won't make an impact for four or five years. It's like, yeah, but a lot of these NHL players make an impact so much quicker. A lot of these kids, you know, come out of their D plus one year. Look at Gunther in Phoenix. Perfect example. Dylan Gunther, right? Would have been the Canucks pick theoretically if we didn't make the trade for OEL and Garland. He's an everyday NHL player in the, you know, two years removed from his draft year. This notion that it takes four or five years for these guys to make an impact in the NHL is, it's bullshit. I mean, I know Hoglander's down in the AHL right now, but Hoglander was playing the NHL his second year. You know, outside, he he did one more year of playing in Sweden. And then the following year, he was playing in the NHL. And I look, there's an argument to be made that Jim Benning rushed him and rushed the majority of young prospects that the Canucks drafted during his tenure. But these guys make an impact a lot sooner. So this idea that it takes so long and that you don't want draft picks because, yes, sure, they are hit or miss. But, you know, they might not make an impact if they do for another four or five years is bullshit. And that's what's frustrating to me. It's just like we just went through all this with Jim Benning and we want it to be done right. And I don't think the window is entirely closed on the P.D. Hughes Demco kind of core. But it's, you know, that window is slowly shutting and they need to kind of focus on how to insulate them with future players and guys that can make an impact on the team today. But this this notion of not adding picks, like, we, we heard this with Jim Benning, man. It's just, ah, uh, it's so frustrating. You know, I'm looking, though, at the 2019 draft, uh, so four drafts ago. And outside of the first round, though, there's not a lot of guys who've had impacts. Like, the guy who had, in the second round, who's played the most NHL games is Niels Hoglander. Uh, you know, the only other guy who's played anywhere close to his amount of games is Arthur Kaliev. No one after Hoglander has played as many games in the NHL as Niels Hoglander. It's not even close. And you got guys in the first round, but right, a lot of them are right, right at the top. You know, Hughes, Kako, Doc. They've, they've all. They're the big three from the 2019 draft in terms of games played. But you know, there. I, I don't know if I totally agree with that. Is like. I do think a lot of the times it does take a bit of time for these guys to 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 develop uh, unless you're a first round pick or you hit a home run. I'm just kind of looking through 2018. There's a bit more. There's a bit more love there, but it's uh, it's still, you know, it's slim pickings, uh, especially once you kind of get out. You know, there's a, there's a, you know, a fourth round or one guy in the fourth round who's got some good games and is a regular. Um, but even in the second round, there's only one, two, three, four, four guys who played over 100 games from the 2018 draft. So, I, I, I mean, drafting is tough. I, I think you're also seeing a lot more guys come through the NCAA and coming through as as, as college free agents, and I think that's uh, another path that the team can continue to look at. But I, I don't necessarily think, unless you're a high pick, I'm not really sure. Unless you really get uh, a bit of luck or hit a home run. I don't think that you can bank on a guy being a, a part of your team for the next couple of years. I mean, I don't think the Canucks have any. I mean, they haven't drafted a lot in the last three years, but they have nobody who's played a game from the last three years. 
No, I mean, there was the one year, I think it was the year they drafted Yoni Yormo. They didn't have a pick till the fourth round, I believe it was, is where they selected Yoni Yormo, or maybe it was the third round. Um, look, yeah, like if you look at the cold hard facts, yeah, yeah, you're right. Like, but that's also to say that most of these players are long shots, anyways, right? Like, how many players get drafted and how many players actually start, you know, playing more than 100 games in their any. NHL careers. A lot of these guys are going to be busts, but I do think you are seeing players make an impact a lot quicker and sooner than we had five, six, ten years ago. Um, you do have to be lucky and you do have to do your due diligence with scouting and stuff like that. But the more picks you have, the higher odds you have to hit on those later mid-round picks. And, you know, if you look at some of the value picks that we've seen over the years, especially in the second round, and how often the Canucks have either traded a second round pick or completely whiffed on a second round draft pick, uh, it's just frustrating. And to me, you know, part of a retool is also to have some good young prospects, because what that means, if you do have some of those good young prospects in line, you could potentially trade them to expedite the retool when you're ready to do it. I think that was one of the issues Jim Benning did is he did it too quick. He was trying to take shortcut after shortcut by signing these long-term bad contracts and free agency and, you know, trading away first-round picks when the team wasn't ready to kind of make those moves. I still think the JT Miller trade was a good trade, but obviously the OEL trade looks awful right now. And... You know, regardless, I do think we're going to see some change. I do think we're probably going to see a Horvat deal go down in the next, you know, two, three weeks, I, I would assume, maybe sooner by all accounts. Max Pacioretty looks like he might be done for the year. So now the Carolina Hurricanes are going to have quite a bit of cap space because they're going to be putting him, him on LTIR. So who knows if this makes them get a little bit more involved in a potential, the bull Horvat sweepstakes. It's all speculation at this point. Um, but yeah, man, I just, I, I just want it to be done right. And when I hear retool and I hear we want reclamation projects over draft picks, it just feels like history is repeating itself and we're going to be taking more and more shortcuts to make this team not competitive again. Oh yeah, it's all, it's all very triggering for us Canucks fans because you know we're we're 13 months or so into this uh, new regime and we're we're still in this mess and there hasn't really been any signs uh, of improving. Um, it's it, it's been a, a tough week. I mean, maybe next week we'll have a coaching change. Maybe next week we'll have a, a trade. I, I don't know about that, but uh, uh, stuff's got to happen. The trade deadline is, I believe, six weeks away now. Maybe even less. Uh, so, do you know the March date of the 3rd. trade deadline? March third. Okay, that's about six weeks away then. Um, so we got a little bit of time here, but um, man, it's uh, it's been a, a strange week in Vancouver. Uh, Doug, we're running a bit long here, so let's take it to the free pour. It's that time of the episode for the free pour open floor segment. And I wanted to talk about a show that debuted on HBO last week. I'm pretty sure most of you know. Uh, a lot of you probably played the video game that the show is based off of. And it's The Last of Us TV series. 
Uh, it's only episode one, but I thought they did a remarkable job of capturing the atmosphere and the, the world that the TV series is based off of from the video game. Um, I also think that this could potentially be that show that breaks the curse of all these failed video game to movie or TV show adaptations. Uh, we've seen it over and over again. I remember the Mario Brothers movie from the 90s, which was awful, had John Leguizamo in it and Dennis Hopper. And it was it was a very 90s cheesy movie. Um, but yeah, man, The Last of Us, it's also one of the co-creators of the Chernobyl series, which was amazing. Pete, I don't know if you've watched Chernobyl yet, but you should. Incredible, incredible series, obviously, about Chernobyl. But yeah, man, I you know, The Last of Us, I'm very excited for it. I love the video game. And so far, HBO has absolutely knocked it out of the park. Yeah, everyone's talking about that. I, I think that's on Crave. I don't, I don't have Crave, uh, and neither of us. I don't have seen Chernobyl either, uh, but it does look pretty good. But uh, I mean, trying to keep the TV off a little bit more when the games uh, aren't on, and try and get outside a bit more, and go running, and hang out in Stanley Park. And uh, I have now seen uh, the other day again. Uh, the Coyotes are coming back, man. I'm telling you right now. Uh, I saw, so a few weeks ago I saw a coyote down at, kind of between Second and Third Beach on the rocks. It was early morning. It looked beautiful. It looked like a sea wolf out there, like kind of foraging. Uh, but this one uh, was actually, I, I got stopped by a guy walking his dog. He's like, hey, there's just so you know, there's a coyote up, uh, up here. He's been following my dog for like 10 minutes. I've been trying to scare him off. And so then there was two of us, and we went to a spot where he wasn't going to come, and the coyote walked away. But it was, it was it's again, it's a, it's a cool reminder that even in the city, I love the coyotes. I've never had a problem with them. Um, I've seen a whole bunch of them, and then after they killed a bunch, uh, you know, I didn't see them as much. But that's two now in the last month. Like, the coyotes are, are coming back. Uh, watch this space. There's going to be more out there. Hopefully they're cool and we don't have to kill them because I think it's really special to be able to, to see them out there. This is a Canucks podcast, Pete, not a Coyotes podcast. People like to get talking about the Phoenix Coyotes. I was, I was waiting for that one. Well, we've, <laughs> we've, 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 we've got a – I'm sure we'll, we'll have more of that with OEL and Gunther and Talkit. Thanks for tuning in, folks. Episode 134, Season 4, Episode 15 of the Canucks Speakeasy Podcast. Just about in the books. I mean, man, there was a, a lot to talk about this week. I mean, you know, we probably could have done a, a two-parter this week. Uh, but, uh, man, it, and it's it's just been, it's been the, the normal circus here. And what about the NFL this week uh, as well? They, we had the wild card round. We had six games. Uh, any surprises for you, Doug? Uh, I'm I'm going to say that for me, the only real surprise, I, I think is the obvious one, is the Jags uh, coming back against the Chargers. I had the Chargers winning that game. To me, that's the only real surprise. Well, and not only the fact that they won the game, but being down 30 nothing and coming back to win 31-30 to is very impressive. Kudos to Doug Peterson 
and uh, that entire Jags team. I mean, that was a huge comeback. Trevor Lawrence threw four interceptions in the first half. It looked awful. Um, and yet somehow they found a way to come back and an absolute collapse from the um, the San Diego Chargers. Oops, sorry. The L.A. Chargers, not the San Diego Chargers. And then obviously I'm going to say, look, I, I know you said you thought Dallas was going to beat Tampa Bay, but I didn't think they would, Tampa Bay would get thumped as bad as they did. And Brady looked absolutely dreadful out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he looked he looked rough. That wasn't that wasn't a very good game. Uh, to watch. Uh, my Seahawks got crushed by the Niners. That wasn't a great game to watch. Uh, I thought the Bills hung in uh, there. I, I thought Miami might have had them, but I'm a little worried with Buffalo going to Cincy next week. I think that's going to, or sorry, Cincy going to Buffalo, but li- I think that's uh, you know, we'll see what happens there. Um, I also uh, I mean, the Giants beating the Vikings is a little bit of a surprise as well there. Uh, that, that's, uh, that was kind of interesting to see. I mean, the Giants in the final eight, three teams from the NFC East and in the in the final eight teams that's crazy yeah i mean the vikings were kind of like one of the biggest frauds this year right they had so many games they won late um kirk cousins i know you had him for the majority of the fantasy football season and he obviously helped you get second place in our championship um but yeah, they just they weren't that good. And this Giants team, Brian Dable, deserves a lot of credit. He's done a really good job going there his first year as a coach. And also Daniel Jones. You know, Daniel Jones made some incredible plays in that game. And, you know, he's a guy who a lot of Giants fans had no faith in and it, thought they took him too high when he was drafted. Um, and, yeah, he deserves a ton of credit as well. And it's nice to see Saquon Barkley finally healthy as well. Daniel Jones, I think, maybe uh, the most underrated quarterback in the league. It's going to be a fun round of games this weekend. Can't wait. After this weekend, there's only three games left, uh, but it's going to be uh, a fun one, uh, especially the Sunday games. They look pretty damn good. Uh, folks, don't forget, you can follow us on social media, on Twitter. I'm at Pete underscore gas. And we also have our podcast playlist on Spotify, the Canucks Speakeasy outro playlist. Do check it out. This track will get added onto it as well. You can give me a follow on Twitter at Doug Venn. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at Canucks Speak. As always, thanks for listening. Hasta luego.